Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. That's a brilliant film. Is it? Yeah. I couldn't watch it. It was out so soon after the event as well, I just thought... When I watched it for the first time, I went to a preview, and I've never been so tense in going to see a film in my life, because you knew exactly what was going to happen, Mm. but what you didn't know is what would you see. Yeah. And actually, you don't see anything too terrible, do you? No, but what I really liked about it was... But it's still just chilling. There's guys who are kind of in, uh, in charge of what's going on are finding out at exactly the same rate as the general public what's going on because they can see it happening. It's, it's plane flying into buildings. You know, They're not any more informed than anyone else. Is. No, that's the chilling thing. They, yeah. Nobody's looking after you. No. <laughs> that was the one about the guy who brought it down, wasn't it? You know, What's his famous slogan? He said oh, let it roll. Let, let it let's roll. Let's roll. Let's roll. <laughs> let's roll. Well, that's what I was think- thinking about. That's Neil Young wrote a song called... Maybe is that's what we're going it called through, Let's it? Roll? It is, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is apparently the line used by somebody who led the, the charge, charge up on the, the flight deck. But I just feel I just feel all these artistic statements about it are a little bit sort of unequal to the enormity of the thing mm. itself. They, it somehow they, seems slightly tasteless to me. Actually. Well, they've been doing this thing on Radio 4 where they've, uh, they've commissioned a, a 9-11 letter from a famous novelist and one's being read out every day this week. And they were quite good, and one of them was a guy writing to his nephew, who's just a baby at the moment, talking about the uh, small elements of that day, about being in his flat and watching the towers go down and stuff. But the one that was on two days ago was Lionel Shriver. Um, and she obviously did... Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. And um, she, <laughs> her, her letter was such a kind of an odd thing, because she took the story, it was all fictionalised, about a guy who had died on 9-11 because he'd been helping a family whose car was on fire. The engine was on fire on some freeway out, out of New York. Um, and the nice bloke stops by the side of the road, starts to get their, their kit out and their children's toys and stuff like that, and then the car explodes while he's in it. 
And um, this letter was written, it was a very kind of Lionel Schreiber thing to do, to do it in a letter form anyway. So she was writing a letter to a woman whose um, husband had actually died in the Twin Towers. And the whole basis of it was saying, your husband's a hero, uh, you've had a proper way of mourning, my husband just happened to die on 9-11 and no-one cares. <laughs> so oh, it's quite, well, yeah. quite a sort of bitter but quite a clever way of doing yeah, it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably you can remember where you were on the day, Fraser. Uh, I was in a pizza restaurant. And uh, I remember. I was in a pizza restaurant. Go on. And uh, I returned to uh, work, and the guy at reception, who was an Arab actually, who said to me, "Ah, there's a plane flying into the Twin Tower." And I went upstairs and caught the second one flying in, and assumed it was a replay of the first. You saw that? Yeah. I was in the pizza restaurant in Charlotte Street, having lunch with uh, Pizza Express. uh, Yes, (laughs) with the editor of a golf (laughs) magazine. Because I was about to go to the to the Ryder Cup, which was due to take place, was it that following weekend was, or the yeah. weekend after? I can't remember. And it got cancelled. And it got cancelled. And uh, we had the pizza and so forth. And then I came out, walked up Charlotte Street, and walked past Saatchi and Saatchi's office, where a huge, great, posh, you know, reception as you as you'd imagine with an advertising agency, with also TV screens all over the place. And you thought, what's that extraordinary piece of special effects footage? Yeah. You yeah, thought it was just because it, well, it, it looked true. like a Hollywood thing, didn't it? Well, it's yeah. And then you just stood there, and there were increasing numbers of people just standing there looking at it. Yeah. I was in the National Film Theatre watching the mystery of Casper Hauser, which is about you know the guy who was brought the up enigma in a, of Casper. The enigma, that's it. Brought up in a cupboard under the stairs, and um, before the lights went up to, to, for the film to start, um, we, we'd known it, we knew it had happened because this was a matinee performance, and the guy in front of us in the next row had a newspaper that was open. We, nobody knew what it was at this stage. We knew it was a, some. Kind kind of terrorist act and we looked over his shoulder and we, we saw what we thought said um chief suspect bin laden with explosives <laughs> it was bin laden oh, <laughs> we just thought never made it? that mistake again <laughs> no. No, really. Strange is, film is this the word podcast i don't believe it is it, i believe we've started already i think we have but the main subject to, to discuss today is uh, is a subject that kay mossman has written about <laughs> in in great depths in in the current issue and the new issue of the word which is queen yeah so kate now when kate first came here everybody knew that she had a strange secret (laughs) (laughs) slowly emerged bit by bit that she had an obsession with queen that passed all reason (laughs) and uh and didn't really fit with your kind of age profile i think that's fair to say so i think a good place to start this uh this discussion about queen uh, is is what we always ask people who, who guest on the podcast, what records were in your house when you were growing up as a child? What records did your parents have? More tasteful stuff than we then started to listen to. <laughs> it was um, all of Paul Simon's stuff, mainly the 80s stuff. Um, River of the, of the Saints was the, the big one as well. Just before I got into Queen, that was the one we listened right. to in 1990. Um, Joni Mitchell... Um, uh, Gil Evans, um, Coliseum, quite quite smart things. So this is really interesting. <laughs> Sophisticated. That's a, that's a real. That's a reversal of how these conversations normally go. You know, because people normally say, "Oh, the only thing my parents had was Mantovani or something." Yeah. But I brought along my cutting edge tastes. No, we had everything. We used to listen to um, Copeland and Delius and stuff like that. Uh, right, <laughs> right, right. So where, <laughs> tell us when Queen first entered your world. Well, it was. It's. Um, I read about it a bit. In the piece, it's, it was one particular song, which I think probably happens with people a lot, um, where you, you're literally captivated by 
what is essentially a chord sequence or a particularly nice melody or something like that. And it somehow cuts through all the other stuff that you're listening to in that period and all the other stuff that's on top of the pops. And it just affects you internally. Um, and I remember hearing this track and I was doing my maths homework and I had my rough book on my lap and suddenly I just felt that something had happened in the room that I was uh, very, very attracted to very strongly. And so how old were you at the time? Eleven. Right. Just turned eleven. And I looked up and I saw this, this odd video. So you heard the sound first? Yeah, and then I looked up and I saw this... Um, it was a song called These Are the Days of Our Lives, which was a very atypical Queen song. It's a, a swan song, really. It's very poignant, um, very laid-back sort of ballad about um, growing old and watching your children grow up and living through them vicariously and stuff. And in a way, I mean, that became... The, the thing that I wanted to track down and I remember my father went on a business trip to Amsterdam and came back with um, a 45 for me of that song and that was the moment where everything had started, like Dad was saying, here you go go off, <laughs> do what you want here's <laughs> your record. So that was your first record? <laughs> that was my first, well that's actually a the... 7 inch 45? Yeah, oh. uh, well I mean I guess the first record I had when I was about 4 was some um, Spitting Image but that was the first one I ever bought. Right, right um, but yeah, this one was from my dad. And then on the flip side of it, it was a double A side with Bohemian Rhapsody. And I'll never forget putting that on and just feeling this crash of disappointment of thinking, oh God, they're like this as well. So I had this sort of beautiful, quite solely um, smooth sounding 90s type song, which I'd been attracted to. And then I heard this opera and I thought, God, there's a lot to take in here. Um, so you'd never heard Bohemian Rhapsody never. before. So what year are we talking about here? Just before Wayne's World, I think, or maybe at the same year that... I think Wayne's World used it in 92. OK. So this was just before it got that revival and the headbanging scene and all that stuff. It seems amazing to me that you could have got to the age of 11 and never he- have yeah. heard Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. I thought it was something in the water supply nowadays. There was, there was probably a gap where it wasn't so cool to be played on Radio 1. I imagine that might have been the gap, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think maybe in the 80s it yeah. wasn't played that much. And my, my mum, we put it on, and my mum said, oh, God, this takes me back to teaching in Tottenham in 1975. And she'd seen him on Top of the Pops, and she felt so sorry for him because of his teeth. She said, <laughs> he's never going to make it. He's so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he was so. So you, you heard it, and then you you saw it. So it's the sound first of all that made the, the effect on you. It's just a really simple falling chord progression, and it's just really beautiful and stuff. And then that's all that that's all it was. And then I guess after that, when all the when I started to collect all the other records, well, they were tapes mainly. I felt more and more disappointed <laughs> because I was thinking <clears throat> that's not quite what I thought it was going to be and then you, you're embracing this thing which is not maybe what you thought you were going to get you, you, it's not what you bargained for and then in the course of, of taking in this vast um, wealth of music which seemed to be in every style under the sun, that in a way makes you think well these people, they can do nothing wrong because I have invested this much in everything they've done, I, I literally love these people <laughs> They can do anything. So during the, you know, the, your early teenage years, when most of your contemporaries at school were into what? Um, well, it was. I think the weird thing is that Nirvana was running as a, a parallel, and there were a lot of parallels in that because he died in '94, but Nevermind came out the same month that this. These are the days of our lives came out. Right. Um, it's it's nearly twenty years, and uh, there was a, a group of girls. It was a girls' school, which kind of explains a lot as well. <laughs> In terms of lack of activity in my life. Um, so there was a, a group of very cool girls who um, never spoke to anyone else. And I was sitting next to one of them in physics one day. And I saw that she had on her rough book written Kurt Cobain with a heart around it. And then next to it, Freddie Mercury with a heart and an arrow going through it. And I remember thinking, 
God, is it okay to like this guy? Because Rachel Devonshire does, and and I never spoke to her. But I said, so do you do you like this guy? Then she goes, yeah, he's all right. And I thought, whoa, this is really strange. And from that point on, I thought there was a certain um, subsection of people who'd got into Queen because of the sort of slightly maudlin element as well that he'd just died. Oh, I see. There was this sort of you know. Now, this, this was a passion you shared with your brother. Yes. Your brother older or young? Older, um, and he, he, was, he and I were sort of neck and neck in it, really, until he started to... He went into sixth form and he did a couple of French exchanges and met some girls and things like that, and, um, and then started listening to Radiohead as well. So I remember I hated Radiohead so much because they were symbolic of Joe kind of growing up, <laughs> leaving home, <laughs> listening to the Bends and stuff. But nowadays, um, I mean, I see him all the time, and he... He's the one constantly sending me clips of rare Queen appearances that he's found on YouTube, and he listens to them much more than I do now, which is surprising, actually. But when you, you adopted, when the both of you adopted this passion, you then yeah. started to retrace the steps of Queen yeah. pretty much, as much as you could. Tell us about that. Well, there was, there was a lot of... Um, there was a great book by Mark Hodkinson, who obviously writes for The Word, our yeah, own yeah. Mark Hodkinson, called Queen the Early Years. And I remember talking to him about it, and he said, I'm not a fan of the band, but I thought it would be an interesting exercise he almost did it in an academic sense to do this book because there had no been no sort of d- detailed books about queen in the 70s so he went back down to cornwall where roger taylor grew up and met taylor's old girlfriend and the mother of a school friend and all this kind of stuff and pieced together this what we thought was a fascinating narrative <laughs> so we went down and i remember one night we stayed in we stayed in a bed and breakfast owned by the mother of a friend of Roger Taylor's from school. That's how obsessed we were. We thought, we're gonna, we just want to be in this house where Taylor might have once been when he was 15. So you steered your mother and father into... They just went along with it, yeah. I mean, they moaned all the time, <laughs> but they, they just did it. They sort of rolled their eyes and said, OK, I mean... But they we, never said no. They never said no, and they, we used to make my dad <clears throat> carry his car keys on a queen key fob. Um, but the thing is... <laughs> We had a Queen one, and then we went... Do you know those gift shops where you can get ones with the name? So it'd be like a key fob that says Fraser. Or oh, something. I see. So yeah. we bought him a Taylor and a May, but <laughs> we couldn't find a Mercury or a Deacon, so we bought him a Murray and a Dixon. <laughs> <laughs> and he carried his lawnmower keys round on a key fob that said Murray on it, because that represented Freddie Mercury. So you slowly started <laughs> piecing together all, all of this music until you, you sort of had it all, really, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And there was so but by much, then, they'd gone. They'd gone, and there was, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not exaggerating that there was nothing said about them, to the point that in my scrapbook, I've, got, I've cut out one sentence that happens to mention one member of the band in relation to another band or something like that, and it's there with a ring around it, like, you know, look, you know, Brian May's been mentioned in an article about Dave Gilmore or something. And they just weren't... Um, they weren't fashionable, and I guess in a way, I think maybe people were quite unsure about how to deal with the circumstances under which they'd gone as well, because I think people are a lot more... I don't know, like, being gay is a lot more fashionable now than it was <laughs> even in the early 90s, you know. It's, people didn't really know what to do. There was all the, the paparazzi side of it, but there wasn't that celebration of camp and, you know, all the stuff that Mika represents now and, you know, flamboyance and that sort of thing. So it wasn't fashionable. I mean, if grunge had held sway then you can see why i guess queen weren't now i'm fascinated by the 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 idea that you you and i'm i'm sure many others like you develop a a, a fascination with a group who've gone by the time Mm. you get there yeah (laughs) i think that it's i think it's a misrepresentation of teenagers to say that 
people do say that there's a sort of pack mentality with teenagers and that they want to identify with something that represents them. They want to be together watching a young group, all this kind of thing. <clears throat> and I think, actually, when you're... If you're a certain kind of person when you're 14 or 15, you obviously want to like something that nobody else likes, even if that means keeping it as a sort of an embarrassed secret. I mean, I didn't tell anyone about it at school um, because I thought they wouldn't understand and I also enjoyed the fact that it was something that no-one else saw and no-one else was interested in. Because, in a way, you, without realising it, you are establishing your own character by following something that nobody else likes. And it's quite liberating. It's like a secret world that you can... I used to walk the dog and listen to Queen records. So what was it like when you would turn up at, a, say, a Roger Taylor gig and you were all of a sudden surrounded by other people who did feel like you? I felt like I'd missed... I felt like I'd, I wanted to know them, but because the internet wasn't in use then, there was no way of us... I mean, I wrote letters to a few of them, and occasionally we would arrange to have a drink before a show at the Astoria or something like that. But I knew there were people out there who liked him as much and who were my age, but technology didn't connect us in the same way that it would now. And I was a bit sad about that, really. <laughs> I would have quite liked to have. <laughs> so presumably now, over the years, you've met many Queen fans. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and what do they have in common? They all like Queen. Obviously. Well, the weird thing is that I've met many people who've had a Queen revival or who now think they're OK to like, um, and so I can't see any similarity between those people and the people that used to go to these, you know, small gigs or conventions. They were obsessive and, you know, properly in love with this group, and now um, lots of journalists that I speak to can see them as a, a good band musically. They, you know, did lots of things before anybody else did, and so they're respected in that way. But there's a very there's a big difference between the super fan and the the sort of, you know, getting a nod from a critic, I think. <laughs> to me, the, 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 their appeal starts and completely finishes with their singles. Mm. I can't imagine <clears throat> sitting down and listening to a Queen album. Maybe that's just a prejudice of my age and my, my generation. I think what's interesting, though, is that there are just so many singles that that's fair enough, in a way, isn't it? There, there is sort of... I remember Andrew Harrison saying that you sort of realised how good they were when that documentary was on, and they did about 12 really good songs. And it's true that a lot of the album stuff was really, really patchy. I mean, just kind of um, thin little songs assembled around these great big majestic things in yes, the middle. Yes, these were great set pieces in the yeah. middle. That's what it was about. But also it? what was interesting about them is, um, and what I think made them continue to be good for 20 years was that they, they all wrote songs. I mean, every single one of them. And... Deacon and Taylor got better at it in the 80s. May and Mercury were really good at it in the 70s and kind of went off a little bit in the 80s, actually. Um, so when you've got four people doing it, you can't really go wrong. I think it, when a band relies on one songwriter or two, there's going to become a point when they can't do it anymore. Right, know? right, but um, this is spread around. Have yeah. you been to see We Will Rock You in London Swinging West End? I did. I went, I went when it opened, um, <laughs> but with a free ticket, I have to say. It was... It was very much like um, this business with singles. You're listening, you're watching this, this embarrassing, weird musical about with a very thin storyline about manufactured bands. And, you know, there's a, a group underground called The Bohemians, and they've heard that there is such a thing called rock music, but they think it's literally a stone because they've lost c connection with what rock and guitars is all about. So the, the Bohemians are going to go and try and find this, you know, guitar that's imprisoned in a rock somewhere. Are you telling me that Ben Elton <laughs> wrote this piece yeah. of genius? <laughs> and so, but you're watching this thing and you're thinking hit after hit, literally just all the songs sound brilliant. And it's everything from um, Don't Stop Me Now to These Days of Our Lives to We Will Rock You and stuff. So 
it works. It, that's why it's successful. Because people go for the songs. The story is almost irrelevant. Isn't yeah, it? the story is, is sort of really bad. I mean, <laughs> they could it twist sound it. Does great? I have to say that the plot. I think they should just get a team in and, and actually sort of tweak the story. No one would know because I doubt people go and see it twice. <laughs> so they could suddenly make it a great piece of drama. I think you could offer, Kate, to <laughs> yeah. an alternative plot line. A musical about Queen would be more interesting, wouldn't it? I now, think. you've done the story in the current issue of Word, where, where you, you've gone and, and spoken to yeah. members of Queen. Was, it, was this the first time you've done this? It was. Well, I had, um, I had followed Roger Taylor into a cinema when I was... Uh, 17. So he, and I you felt followed him into literally the followed into cinema. What was the cinema? What was the film? The film was Godzilla. The cinema was the Truro Plaza on <laughs> Lemon Street. And my mum and dad had to wait in the car outside for the entire trip. So, sorry, I want to know how this happened. You were walking down Truro High Street and you thought, there's Roger Taylor out of Queen. Well, we had this thing where we went to Cornwall every year. We still do. And as we became more aware that he actually still had connections with the place, I used to say, we're going to see him this summer, which I just know we're going to see him. And <laughs> the only reason that we saw him was that my dad had something wrong with his eye. He'd been gardening and he got a piece of ivy in his eye and it scratched his cornea. So he had an eye patch on and wasn't driving. So usually he does. He was sitting in the passenger seat, driving up Lemon Street. My mum was um, driving, my dad was looking out the window and he goes, there he is. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, it's actually happened. So we looked left and we saw him and his girlfriend walking down the <coughs> And he looked exactly like you'd imagine him to look. Um, but he was just... He went into an Indian restaurant and then... Um, which obviously we know because we had to sit and wait at the top of the hill until it came out. And then, I think your mum and dad are saints. And then we saw... I think him. many, many dads would have spotted him and thought, I'm not saying anything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would have kept completely stumped. I think they were happy that it was... You know, they, they thought that if we met him, then it might end. The whole thing might finish. Because in the feature, you've got a little flow chart that you wrote as a as a, as a yeah. teenager yeah. about what would happen if you met Roger Taylor. I just knew that whatever, it, no matter how nice he was, it was only going to... If he was really nice, it would make me love him even more. If he was really horrible, it would be so soul-crushing that I would hate him and I'd hate to hate him. Um, if he wasn't there at all, then it was a waste of time having gone to Cornwall in the first place. It was all very kind of, very, very intense. But also, I knew that it was stupid as well. And I kind of enjoyed joking about it, but it was deadly serious. <laughs> so you ended up going into the cinema. Yeah, bought sit, a ticket. Sitting, what, behind Roger Taylor? We actually, <laughs> by the time they'd gone in, we had to guess which film they'd gone in to see. And The Wedding Singer was the other one, which is a great film. So we bought tickets to that. We got in, sat down, looked around... <laughs> No, Roger Taylor. We went out. You didn't go up and down the aisles with a torch. <laughs> Not quite. But then we went out and we said to the, the cashier, um, we're really sorry, we, we suddenly realised we've already seen this film. <laughs> Can we swap our tickets for Godzilla instead? <laughs> so they, uh, they looked at us slightly oddly. And uh, we went in and sat a few rows behind him and his girlfriend for the whole of the film and then um, made sure that we collared them on the way out for an autograph. And he looked at first, because it was 11 o'clock at night, dark, provincial town he thought he was being mugged you could tell <laughs> he sort of looked really shocked and then when he realized that we just wanted an autograph he was nice i imagine it was quite an intense autograph though yeah the conversation went something like um i think uh, i said did you enjoy the film and he said yeah lots of dinosaurs and my brother said a bit like jurassic park and that was, <laughs> <laughs> was one of those awful things but you can remember it years yeah every line absolutely every syllable but after that i mean i remember i went to university maybe the net the following year and from that point, I didn't really, didn't really think about them again. They were always there in the background, but I didn't take any music with me to university and stuff. And I think that really 
was the fruition of it, that autograph. So you, you went and met them, yeah. Roger Taylor and, uh, and Brian, May. Uh, Brian May, recently, yeah. and kind of, you know, explained to them yeah. your... Uh, your teenage obsession. Were they surprised? They, I think they weren't, because I was thinking afterwards, they must be so used to meeting obsessive fans that, in a way, to say... They're the was, ones they're most likely. They really are, yeah, because they don't do many interviews and they have an awful lot of people who dress up as them and, you know, go up to them for autographs at Queen events and stuff. I mean, there's a guy who follows them around who wears the Freddie Mercury 1986 tour jacket and they're so used to meeting people who maybe have tattoos all over their face saying Queen or dress up like them. They, they know exactly how to... I mean, when I worked for The Cure, I remember going to see them play in an opera house in Paris and the entire front row was made up of Robert Smith alikes. Yeah. And that's who he meets. It's They're really the fans he meets. isn't it? So They're the ones who are keenest on him and look like him and dress like him. And the this, ones is, end up yeah. to. this is what they all say about Bob Dylan on tour, you know, that he, in Europe particularly, that he looks down and he knows exactly who's in the first five rows because yeah, yeah. they were there in Hamburg... Last night. So in they fact, try and shake it up as much as possible and, and, and avoid those people being in the front row. Do they ever they? put other people in the front just deliberately so that he's not well, going to see the same does people? Yes, they, does, they yeah. try and shake it up and they move people from the back. Because well, genuinely, it must be really irritating yeah. for the artist looking down and going... Same old faces. Yeah, same yeah. old faces. There's nothing, nothing changed at all. I know. It must be, it must be, I mean, I remember Jimmy, Jimmy Webb coming on stage at Ronnie Scott's and seeing a couple of his super fans in the front row and he just said, oh, God, it's like a bad dream I never wake up from. <laughs> <laughs> but I do sympathise... <laughs> <laughs> Can't people leave these people alone? You know, how many times do you need to go and see The Cure or Bob Dylan or, or yeah. Queen or anything? You know, it's, it's like well, a- I think it's when you uh, that definitely that feeling when Taylor was doing those tours in the nineties. I didn't, I couldn't bear the thought that he was playing somewhere and I wasn't going to see it if there was any chance I could because I don't get that near him very often anyway. So obviously, you're going to try and do five gigs out of ten if you can because. You don't know how long it'll be before you're in the presence of the person again. So it does sort of... But, yeah, I think they're very used to meeting obsessive, to be honest. And, and actually, Brian May didn't kind of believe me. And, and at the end of the interview, we were talking about the remasters, and I said something about the Prophet song, which is a great prog thing on um, Night at the Opera, and about the, the fact that you can hear the wind whistling from the, the right speaker to the left speaker. And <laughs> he went... Oh God, you really do like us, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Brian, what do I have to do to show you? <laughs> it must be a very strange experience. So, Queen, what are they nowadays? I mean, John Deacon's gone away. Yeah, John Deacon still does the business side of it, but he communicates with them by email. Um, Where does he live? He did for a while live in Beeritz, but I think he's living in England, maybe between the pair. I mean, I remember when um, they did a rich list back in the 90s, which, of course, I cut out and put in the scrapbook because it mentioned Queen. John Deacon was, uh, this about 94, bringing in two million a year, um, and Brian May and Roger Taylor were bringing in about 500,000. So and that's before we were rocking. Way before, and this was in the dead <laughs> 90s, you know. So John Deacon's always been a business head. And I think probably has a lot of investments. Um, and the other two, the other two are just, I guess, doing whatever they can do to kind of keep it around. And um, I think they they still like doing the appearances. They've had a little bit of a revival since the musical. You know, they've got used to being celebrities again. Um, it must be nice if you can just pop out once a year and get a bit of a recharge yeah. of that that adulation, and then go back to your. 
Especially you're if you're thinking, you know, this never happened to us in the past and now suddenly they like us again. You must be laughing on the inside about uh, it. <laughs> have you been to see them with, uh, with Paul Rogers? No, I wasn't. I didn't want to see that. I wasn't interested. It just doesn't... It's, it's not the picture, is it? It's not, and it's also... It's blues rock as well. It was very non-Queen type stuff that they were playing. Uh, lots of... Um, sort of gritty, heavy riff stuff, but slightly, you know, smelt a bit of denim jackets and <laughs> stuff like that. I wasn't, I wasn't into that at all. Um, but mainly that's because you, you don't want to see what you love changing. Tampered with. Tampered no. with, yeah. No, no, but no. I think, I mean, they don't really particularly talk about that period now either. They've put that behind them and they're not playing with him again. So I guess maybe they know that it wasn't the best thing that they did, yeah. The funny thing that struck me, I was thinking about this last night, the funny thing that struck me about Freddie Mercury is is how important was his was the fact that he was foreign? Very. So what was his background? He, well, was, he was Parsi, Zoroastrian um, religion, born to Persian parents in Zanzibar and then raised in Bombay in a boarding school. So, in fact, the what was probably just as important was the fact that he was a colonial boy raised in an English boarding school. He's like the Cliff Richard type. Well, thing, that's you know, the, exactly the person I was thinking yeah, of yeah. as a parallel. Cliff Richard. Yeah. Both people who came back to England when they were, what, teenagers? Yeah. Or came to England that they'd never been to before. And it's like the Secret Garden. Suddenly they come to this kind of cold, rainy, felt of Middlesex or whatever, and Freddie Mercury worked in a sandwich shop for um, uh, Heathrow Airport for a while, I think, just stacking crates and things. And, and Cliff Richard came back and lived in a you know really cheap council house down in Dart- Dartford or yeah. something like that. I mean, they're very poor backgrounds, you know. Yeah. And, and, but... but there's something about that that allowed them to, to sort of reinvent themselves. Yes, quite possibly. To, to, to do things that they would never have done had they grown up amongst Everyone you know, the else people who... that they were, they were potentially entertaining. They hadn't. Yeah, and I think maybe, maybe even the, the opportunities of those schools. I mean, he was in a band from the age of 12 or 13, and I've seen pictures of them, and they had, they had instruments. They, had, you know, they were well provided for with pianos and guitars in this posh boarding school in Bombay, and maybe they... They got to be a bit musical, and then also I remember when he came over here, I think he had one O-level and one A-level, so he didn't even have the qualifications that would particularly enable him to go down a normal career route. Um, I remember their old... I think someone in one of the old documentaries said about him, well, he had no marketable skills. <laughs> like, what could he do? He had to become a rock star. I right think this is, this is very often the, you know, the, the best way of looking at rock stars. Yeah. You know, they're very often people who are literally unemployable yeah, in any completely. other respect. You know, but they're Quite just good at arts. It gets poured <laughs> all into one thing yeah. that they're remarkable at. And he basically followed... Brian May and Roger Taylor were very much the, um, uh, the normal middle-class English boys who'd got their A-levels and were doing science degrees and had careers to go to. And Freddie Mercury started hanging around with their band, Smile, um, and going to see their shows. So it was very much that he was the hanger-on. And he liked the fact that these they, they've supported Yes and stuff at the Albert Hall, Smile. They were really quite a good band. Um, but their vocalist wasn't that great. And Freddie Mercury waited till the vocalist dropped out and then got straight in there. So it It's an of, extraordinary idea, isn't it? Because Roger Taylor and Brian May both kind of... Kind of you can imagine them as... They look like rock stars. Mm. Freddie Mercury didn't look like a rock star. No, no, not at all. And the idea that he forced his way into this and said, not only am I going to be in this group, I'm going to be out front of this yeah. group. Yeah. Remember the face kind of, in- of this group with my extraordinary overbite? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> there was oh, something wow. exotic about him, wasn't there? Because, because of the accent, because he mm. didn't kind of look like a rock star. He did have something going on, I think. Well, I think it was the swagger is the thing that, that, that I remember most that came over on television. Yeah. That this was a person who... 
acted as if he had all the confidence in the world, you know. It made David Bowie look quite retiring, really. Yeah. You know? it, was, it was an utterly theatrical, I'm going to go centre stage and I'm going to take command here and all the attention that's going on in this room is it going will to be, be focused on, on me. I mean, he that had takes to, a lot of courage to do that. And it's it the whole package as well, because he had a couple of groups before he joined Queen and one of them was called Ibex and... Another one's called Sour Milk Sea. And he used to take Roger Taylor on those tours with him to open the doors of his cars. <laughs> Roger Taylor would sort of, because they were very close, he would pair up as a roadie just to give Freddie Mercury the appearance of a rock star by opening the, you know, the car door and carrying his stuff for him and things like that. So it was all very, very cleverly so done. So beha- he behaved like a superstar from the beginning. before he was one. Yeah, yeah. And he behaved like a superstar from when he was at art school and, you know, just hanging around in the canteen right, <laughs> sort of right, thing. So. Right. So what's your favourite Queen tune? Um, I think probably still that first one I ever heard, um, but also uh, Innuendo, which is... Innuendo is the, the Bohemian Rhapsody of the 1990s. It's a great big six-minute rock song with a flamenco part in the middle. It's Steve Howe is playing. Um, Rosa and I are looking very... Oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's so like Beethoven's late quartet. <laughs> it, no, it's so beautiful. It's, it's really... Um, it's really exciting. It's kind of spine-chillingly um, high because his voice went very high when he was ill. And uh, it's got this amazing drum bit at the beginning that's based on Ravel's bolero as well. So it's really kind of like neoclassical thing. Um, and I still think that's probably their best thing. Um, but, yeah, a lot, there's so, so, so much stuff, really. It's all but, so different. Have you got any other musical obsessions from those years? From, not from those years, but the whole Glenn Campbell thing came... <laughs> As a result of at university. Kate also has an obsession for the <laughs> listeners with Glenn Campbell. I, I was trying to sell Kate on the idea that she should write a book <laughs> about having these cross-generational musical passions. And, and it ought to be called Born Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a serious point, actually. And I think lots they, of people have that as they well. Do, they yeah. do. You know, I was talking to They Might Be Giants about this at Latitude. And they were saying that loads of people who come to see them are 1920. And they, yeah. they've never heard of Birdhouse in Your Soul. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, this is not the, you know, the kind of after years of They Might Be Giants. It's just still going on. No, I mean, you, you, you just have to look at the old, um, old clips of people like uh, Bob Seger on, on YouTube or something, and you'll get a 15-year-old writing underneath it that says, you know, I'm 15, I love this music more than anything else in the world, and you see when it was posted and it was last month or something. So you think it's just such a... It's just not true that people want to identify with their own stuff. Okay, above your desk you've got a picture which you recently got from the United States, didn't yeah. you? Who's on this picture? It's an amazing picture. Backstage, um, mid-70s, I think. It's uh, Bob Seger embracing Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> a more kind of blue-collar classic you've <laughs> never seen. It's a fantastic picture. Yeah, it's lovely. He's holding a packet of fags in one hand and he looks absolutely ebullient because I think he's just come off stage um, and he's all sort of pouring with sweat and stuff and then Springsteen just looks smooth like he always does, just, you know, grinning away. But it's a really good photo. I might have to put it on Twitter, actually. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So one of the topics that's been uh, hotly debated uh, this week on the Word website, wordmagazine.head.uk, is this appears from time to time, but it's, it's, it's recently had a revival, is funeral music, Fraser. Yes. Funeral music. And I was looking at the various uh, contributions to this debate uh, earlier, and it strikes me that they kind of they break down into two groups... There are those who go for who who would like to leave instructions that their favourite kind of um, rock anthem should be played. 
um, suggestions like Ripple by the Grateful Dead, <laughs> Last Orders by Richard Hawley, Meet on the Ledge by Fairport Convention. <laughs> this is after the service, presumably, a big crashing chord to I open suppose, when everyone I, yeah. files out. Yeah. Who knows where the time goes. And then there's the other people who kind of want to take the mickey out of the whole thing and they're suggesting down, down, deeper and down yeah. by status quo. I think my suggestion came into that category. Does it? Right. Yeah. So it's, No, but it's an interesting debate, this, because as we're moving into a more and more, well, certainly in Britain, more secular age with exceptions, um, the the days when people turned up and, and, you know, somebody just ticked, oh, God, our helping age has passed and mm. abide with me or whatever in the hymn book have probably gone. Definitely design your own now, isn't it? It's now design, It's like weddings, isn't it? You know, nobody has the wedding out the, you know, the, the, the Book of Common Prayer or whatever, don't they? They no. get it from, you know, they, they get it off the, off the web. <laughs> <laughs> and so funerals are going to go the same way. So mm. get used to it. In the future, you're going to go to funerals where people are going to be playing, you know, kind of old Frank Zappa tunes or Joy Division <laughs> or... I don't know what, boy's own, whatever. I think of part of the urgency... How do you feel about this, Kate? Well, it's part of the urgency of... of the re- reason we've all had this conversation is that no-one wants to be misrepresented at their own funeral. If they have some bad accident and then, you know, they play Dancing Queen or something like that, you just... It would be the worst moment, so you basically... You need to tell your friends just in case anything bad happens. <laughs> um, I used to want... I was living in Hungary for a while and I was very... Um, uh, lonely there and kind of in a calm not particularly happy way but just getting on doing this teaching job and stuff and I used to spend the bus journey planning my funeral <laughs> but not in a maudlin way seriously I just thought um, and the song uh, when everyone filed in was going to be Tiny Dancer by Elton John <laughs> so this is fantastic so you planned your own funeral this is like the desert island disc that you definitely get to do isn't exactly, it exactly yeah, yeah. And you have to have one for the way in and one for the way out and I think Wichita oh, really? alignment was oh, the way out great. yeah so go on, Tiny Dancer. Tiny Dancer on the way in, because that piano, the way the piano starts, is just a great thing when people are filing into their seats. Right, OK, go on. And then, um, and then it would be Wichita alignment at the end, because by that point everyone's a bit emotional and, you know, the whole Glen thing means quite a lot, so... Wichita alignment, yeah. as, as people are going out? As people chair. are going out, yeah. Fraser, have you given any thought to this? Well, uh, what I want is a really, really serious uh, funeral where people genuinely are distraught and weeping at my passing. <laughs> And then as the, as, as, the, uh, as the casket slowly wheels its way down into behind the curtains, I want living in a box by living in a box. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of uh, anything more joyful or inappropriate to play at that moment. You see, my suggestion, and I, I keep saying this to my wife and she affects not to hear me, and probably doesn't hear me actually, is, is I would like uh, the uh, cricket commentary with Jonathan Agnew and Brian Johnson, where they both completely corpse over you know, you know <laughs> making some mistake and because i think the sound of giggling is a hugely infectious thing yes that's true and, you know, over your this, well it, it's journey mitchell in that song all the people's party she says laughing and crying it's the same release mm-hmm. and it is completely the and you same do thing. when you're very upset you laugh a lot as well, well. yeah, yeah. You, 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 and you sort of give got to give people some excuse to to let go that doesn't necessarily mean that they're missing me or anything <laughs> like that. You know, it just means the tension of a funeral. Yes, is is in such a sapping thing. Yeah, in itself, and particularly in the kind of Anglo-Saxon tradition where we kind of hang on to our emotions. You know, it's not like going to a funeral probably in the Middle East or 
whatever, where it's all big displays are it? encouraged, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so you just need to you need to let people let go at that moment. And instead I think of giggling halfway. is a really good way to let go. That's my theory. Um, <laughs> Sniggering. I was <laughs> I was I was looking back. This reminded me of a feature I read in the New Yorker ages ago, and I found it on the archive when the, the playwright Wendy Wasserstein. Um, was asked ten years ago or longer, what would you have played at your funeral? Would mm. you set out music? And she said, yes, I'd definitely set out music because otherwise you, the, you face the potential nightmare that one of your friends will sing, I shall be released. Yeah. And your best friends will then get up and say, when I first met Wendy, and then talk about themselves for two yes. hours. <laughs> so it's, Celebrity it's the, funerals it's the would kind be like of that. self-indulgence of it, you know. Uh, and so, uh, and then in this feature, a, a novelist called Mary Gordon, this is my favourite, she said that the service should be no, no words, whatever, just the music from Foray's Requiem, and then as you're going out, Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the street. Nice. <laughs> you know, because I don't think you can make this an ego trip. You know, to to me, sitting down alone, I'd like you to play Raikuda's yes. <laughs> fourth track of his second album. It's a little bit like sitting a load of people down at a dinner party and saying, can I play you a new record? I'd <laughs> never do that. It's so rude. Yeah. You know, the idea that you do it after you're gone. Actually, the thing on the way out should be the upbeat one, definitely, shouldn't it? That's well, the bit yeah. of fun, because it's saying that you've come to the funeral, well done, have yes, some fun. well done. <laughs> Go and get some canapes. <laughs> absolutely. You know, I think you've got to think about the people who are there. Yeah. Do we know any of the um, music of the famouses and anybody that they've had at their funerals? Uh, well, I suppose I, I don't offhand. Well, didn't didn't Graham Chapman of Monty Python always look on the bright side? Always look on the bright oh, side. Yeah, of I life. think that's become a kind of funeral classic anyway. It's played a lot. It's but one of the top five. I choices. think they probably did that. I think they did that at a, at a memorial service yeah. rather than the funeral because the funeral is often people are very raw at the funeral. People yeah. can't, you know, the immediate family understandably cannot focus on anything they just want to get through it yeah uh the time for this stuff is memorial services there was a great there's a famous the um, one on youtube which is jim henson's funeral with the muppets oh singing. yes extraordinary That's... with uh, big bird singing yeah. it ain't easy being green really sad but and, really and the beautiful. audience everyone's in floods of tears yeah it's fantastic. but they managed to marshal the muppets together to do that yeah and I, then... went to, I went to one funeral where the klf were played on the way out which really kind of interesting which yeah. one it was a, it was a funeral of a guy who used to work with the klf and his voice has, had featured on the beginning of the track that they played on the way out. So the funeral finished, and then all of a sudden his voice boomed out wow, in this chapel. Good, yeah. it, was, it was incredible. And then this enormous great dance tune kicks in. Yeah. So, well, this, no doubt this debate will continue on the website. <laughs> it's a way to keep ourselves amused, isn't it? <laughs> Wordmagazine.co.uk. Fraser, what are you doing this weekend? Anything exciting? And uh, No, I'll be watching the Rugby World Cup. OK. Before going to the Rugby World Before Cup. Before going to the Rugby World Fraser's Cup. Fraser's going to New Zealand and he's got tickets for all the games, haven't you? Eight games, yeah. Eight games, what about that? And staying with relatives that he hasn't seen since he was a, a baby. Yes, exactly, yeah. Very People exciting. I haven't met since Mostly I was Mostly in their uh, 80s. Ten. Okay, what are you doing this weekend? Uh, I'm going to see a puppet show tomorrow at <laughs> the Barbican. I can't remember what it's about. <laughs> I like a puppet. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.